From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the sounds and maybe some sights from GreenBiz21, the economics of biodiversity, and the power of executive compensation on climate leadership. It's just another payday this week on 350. It's February 12th, 2021. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me fresh from her MC duties this week at Green Biz 21 is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. I'm kind of sick of talking, but I'll talk to you. <laughs> it was great seeing you and uh, on screen, of course. And um, you may be sick of talking, but you talked great. You were Thank you. Uh, an excellent host. <laughs> And as I said uh, in my opening line, I don't know if you caught that, um, that it's so great to see you taking over the MC duties from the old guy who used to do it. <laughs> I don't think I actually clued into that, but um, I don't agree with that sentiment, but thank you for your compliment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it, it was great to have you do that. Um, what did you think from your perch at the, uh, at the MC booth? Well, I have to say that I was very uh, on top of it. <laughs> um, it. And it's always fun to see behind the scenes when people are getting ready to, to have these amazingly profound things come up, come out on stage. And everyone's just such a real person. Um, how much I learn every time someone opens their mouth at, at a Green Biz event. It's just, um, it's humbling. And I'm so grateful for all the people that share their wisdom with us. Yeah, and that goes for the audience. And what, what really struck me, and, and this is our third digital virtual only event, as opposed to just live streaming something that, you know, we did as we did last year from Phoenix, live streaming the, the main stage as an all digital event. You know, we're, we're getting better at it. But what's really amazing is how engaged the audience is. The audience, the sponsors who generally, uh, I'm told, don't like virtual events because it just, you know, it's just not the same as is pressing the flesh and breaking bread in person. And um, they really like it. And I think that's because the green biz community really steps into the moment. They show up and uh, they're really active on chat. I mean, we have, you know, and, and there's a lot of things you can do virtually, you know, at all events, we have these round tables, which is basically uh, some expert, we used to call them gurus, uh, on a topic would would you know be at some table and people would come and, and join them for lunch, actually. Uh, and because they're round tables, you could only fit about 10 people at a table and sometimes, you know, 12 or 15 would squeeze in. Uh, but, you know, there was a physical limit. Well, we now have, you know, 100, 150, 200 people at some of these and, and engage, not just watching. They turn mm -hmm. on their cameras, they yeah. say who they are, they speak up. Not all at once. You can't do that with 200 people, but really engaged. And um, yeah, it's it's not the same as being there. It never will be, at least in my lifetime. But uh, I think that it really is gratifying uh, how much people uh, do show up and participate 
and how much it's very clear how much we all need that connectivity. Yeah. And it was true before the pandemic and it's even truer now. Yeah. I, I and I, I can't agree with more with you more on the audience part of it. It is it is a community that shares, and that's I think that's why we can keep getting such great speakers because everyone learns, and then they want to tell everyone else about it, so that we can all get better together. So, yeah, it's wonderful. So in this week's episode, we're going to be playing a few segments from the, this week, um, but we'll have more next week, and uh, I don't know the week after too. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but but. Uh, We've got some great uh, main stage presentations that we will uh, excerpt and uh, some more highlights coming up in a bit. But let's first do the Week in Review. Let's start this week talking about the Wild West of plastic credits and offsets. Now, this is something that's not brand new, but it's just coming online in a lot of ways, at least ramping up. Um, and this is a piece by our uh, Circular Economy uh, Senior Analyst and Director of the Circularity Conference, uh, Lauren Phipps, talking about these, these goals that companies are setting to be plastic neutral. So if you thought, you know, you'd seen carbon neutral and all kinds of other neutrals, uh, plastic neutral is the, the, the new neutral. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, they're talking about what does that mean? So the idea here is that, um, you know, you can put plastic waste out there in the world, but uh, as long as you are causing somehow other waste to be picked up and, and, and re use and maybe you're even reusing it some of it yourself the waste you put out there again this is based on this theory is is neutralized and therefore you can claim plastic neutrality um and what lauren writes about here is you know in, in this is evident in the wild west uh part of the headline is that you know this is just sort of taking shape and it's, it's fraught with challenges and complications. There's no industry standard or definition of what that means. Um, we've been, you know, we've seen this happen with carbon credits where, and, and all these, uh, you know, net zero uh, carbon emission commitments where you can emit as much as you want or need to, as long as you're, you know, doing something over here that's, that's, sequestering or, or somehow reducing carbon emissions, you can claim neutrality. And as, as uh, Lauren writes, the potential for greenwashing is high. So this is a really interesting space uh, right now, and we're going to be hearing more and more about this. Uh, but what do you think? So I, the thing that struck me was that that it is becoming bigger because a couple of people put papers out about about it. Uh, WWF took a stab at um, helping companies understand how to use how to navigate these things, as well as the Circulate Initiative. Um, they put out a report called "A Sea of Plastic Claims and Credits: Steering Stakeholders Toward Impact." So, th the fact that these two papers have come out, I think, is trying to put a, put some definition around it. Um, and I I'm actually. I've never heard of anyone actually saying that they had used plastic credits to make a, a claim of any any sort, like a, a company. Like I actually, I mean, I know there's plenty of companies that work with um, one of the organizations that's mentioned here, the Plastic Bank, um, to to help uh, build ecosystems in other parts of the world and to help. Um, they are getting credits for that, but I've rarely heard um, people 
reporting in, in any any kind of major way on it. And I think that's, again, testament to the fact that it's a very emerging nascent market. I did not know that there are 32 plastic claims and crediting programs in the marketplace, according to the Circulate Initiative, which, I, which surprised me. Um, but we definitely are going to start following this much more closely because, as we know, um, Everyone's making claims about plastic, single-use plastic packaging, plastics. Um, you know, every major consumer products company has some kind of plastics commitment, and I can only imagine that this will become of more interest to those organizations and how they use them. I think will be crucially important as we see this unfold. Yeah, and the question, of course, is: uh, Does a plastic neutral or zero net zero plastic waste or whatever the claim wants to be, does that mean you're actually reducing the amount of plastic in in the environment in the waste stream, or does it just mean that you're you know doing some accounting that allows you to continue to put plastic out there, um, and while you're you know allegedly cleaning it up somewhere else, and this is going to be a big issue, and I I can I can almost feel Greenpeace's hot breath on the necks of the corporate executives <laughs> coming forward on that. So it's an incredibly complex and uh, again, watch this space. But speaking of complex, wow, uh, nine key takeaways from the 600 page uh, review on the economics of biodiversity. This comes from uh, Cecilia Keating over at Business Green. Um, this is a, a really interesting uh, exercise. First of all, there's this Dasgupta review on the economics of biodiversity that came out last week, and it, it's a, called a landmark paper that explores the relationship between biodiversity and economics and argues that natural capital is being ignored by economic thought, and, uh, and that's enabling the further destruction of uh, natural resources, as Cecilia writes, on a monumental scale. And so calls on companies to address this. And this is, I'll have to say, really interesting. And, and while it seems kind of academic, uh, at least this paper and the analysis of it, um, this is a, becoming a bigger and bigger issue. And, and uh, I also have to say, and I, you know, you know, toot our horn here a little bit. We wrote about this in the State of Green Business Report as one of the 10 trends that we would be tracking in 2013. It's called Companies Take Stock of Natural Capital. And it's the idea that that this limited stock of Earth's natural resources that humans depend on for our prosperity and security and, and well-being, you know, and this has been around for a long time, going back to the 70s, this conversation about uh natural capital, but uh, that this was going to start to you know, be show up on, on the balance sheet or at least in, in the senior management and, and C-suite of companies because this becomes a proxy for efficiency, a proxy for uh, companies that are operating within the planetary boundaries uh, of one earth. And um, you know, right now we're we're at 1.6 Earths in terms of how we're using resources. And last time I checked outside, wait, I'm going to look again. Yep, yep, still just one Earth out there. So we need to uh, to be uh, you know doing this. We're just not sustainable. We have to be operating within planetary boundaries. Yeah, this this is uh, 
kind of actually, if you think about it, it's, it, again, the reason this is becoming more urgent to discuss and think about is because of those, those goals that the big companies are setting. And more companies are talking about nature-based solutions and how they are addressing their impact and how do they declare that and how do they report on that? And that's that goes back to this natural cap, the need to have a natural capital sort of definition and, and for the, that, that to receive a value that relates to the business, um, a value that relates to where they're going to be going in the future. The danger of that, as, as, um, as some would point out, is that whenever you talk about valuing nature, that, that sort of gives you ability to use it <laughs> and abuse it in a, in a way that, uh, that businesses have been. So that's the worry. Um, that that if it's a managed asset, uh, you know, like that it would if if we if people if businesses think about it this way, that we might degrade it even further. So I mean, that's those are the naysayers. Um, I do think that um, we absolutely need a price on it, though, to to move forward in terms of our current structure. Um, so it's a great it's a great report. Yes. 600, 600 pages, this thing is. I don't think that it's, uh, I, so I definitely, this is the cliff notes of it, <laughs> uh, this story. So I definitely would, would take a look at it. And then I mean, in all seriousness, if this is something that you're thinking about, you gotta, you gotta dive in. Well, kudos to uh, Cecilia for breaking it down for us. But this is, this is something that is really going to, uh, as we talk more and more about the business case for biodiversity, we talked about it a little bit. This week at, at GreenBiz21, uh, and we're going to be talking about it from a different lens through the investor lens um, at GreenFin21 in April. Uh, but this will become more of an issue as we start to uh, to judge companies and maybe even incent companies. In other words, when it hits their bottom line. And that brings us to our third piece I want to talk about today, about how climate change can be addressed through executive compensation. This comes to us from Nidia Martinez and Ryan Resch, who are both at Willis Towers Watson, the uh, global advisory and accountancy firm, talking about how ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues, uh, as they've risen to the top, that that these still are not being uh addressed, even though the importance of it is being seen increasingly by companies and C-suites and boards of directors, it's not being felt yet in executive compensation, uh, with a few exceptions. Apple, for example, yeah. just a few weeks ago Intel. said that they were going to be doing that. Intel? Yeah, yeah Intel does So uh, again, a few exceptions, uh, but most companies are not yet doing this. And that, that once we do, once it's in a uh, CEO's uh, direct interest to make sure that we're hitting the metrics, corporate me goals on uh, on greenhouse gas emissions and other aspects of climate change, and probably some other issues as well, including perhaps someday biodiversity. Um, uh, that that is going to be a big key to to moving companies and moving markets. Mm -hmm. and, and and we know that companies move and in leaders and managers move in the way that they're uh, rewarded for moving. So I think one of the things that jumped out for me was that right now only 48% of CEOs are 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 implementing this in in some way into the executive compensation plan, but as far as the the surveys go over the next 3 years, this is some research that Willis Towers Watson did with 350 
uh, European companies and uh, the U.S. Uh, S&P 500 companies. About 11% of uh, the top European companies have CO2 emissions, for example, linked to their incentive plans. Only 2% of the U.S. companies, well, which that doesn't really surprise me. But as you look forward the next three years, um, there will be a big shift in this. And I think just overall, the, the numbers suggest that four out of five of the, the folks that were surveyed for this plan to change their compensation, executive compensation over the next three years to better account for ESG priorities. So definitely something that uh, the C-suite needs to talk about more. And, and we we know that, uh, that uh, the sustainability folks will be very happy to see this. Yeah, and, and and I don't think that forty eight percent of companies are, are doing this yet. That forty eight percent, as I'm reading it, is of CEOs are implementing sustainability into their operations, uh, but there, it's not reflected in executive compensation. That's I'm guessing single digits, as you said that two uh, percent earlier. Uh, but obviously, uh, what what needs to happen is they need need to be uh, some some. This is a, what gets measured gets managed. Um, and figuring out how to do that, what are the KPIs uh, in in uh, compensation plans? Uh, that's still um, a wet ball of clay that hasn't yet been figured out. But I think some companies, as we said before, Intel and Apple being two of them, are figuring out. And and yeah, it it could change uh, payday and pay year for a lot of CEOs. And you know. Where the money goes, behavior follows. And that this is true for us as individuals, home, homeowners, consumers, shoppers, uh, as it is in, at the highest levels of the corporate world. So Heather, you've got some clips that you have picked out for us from Green Biz 21 this week. Uh, what do you got? <laughs> yes, I picked them out. I was listening to them for this podcast, this very podcast. So I'd like to queue up three sets of, uh, of thoughts from the main stage. I'm going to start with Sanda Ojiambo, the executive director and CEO of the United Nations Global Compact. It was a great, she's been in the role for about Oh, seven months, and it was a great way to uh, get acquainted with her agenda. And so the highlight that I'd like to play from our conversation was when she was talking about the ingredients of a strong human rights policy and how to make sure it becomes part of your organization and part of the ethos, not only for your employees, but also for your business partners. So here is Sanda Ojiambo. Let me start by saying, you know, statements policies, fundamental and great. What we now need to do is translate these policies, uh, these these papers and statements into action. You know, within the UN, we talk about the decade of action, but you know, this moves beyond that, even within companies, we must really demonstrate, um, you know, adherence to everything that we say and put on paper um, for that. So, you know, first of all, it's about being transparent. It's about stating that commitment, making the company's public expression of its desire to meet, you know, the, the policy issue at hand, you know, be it human rights or any other standards. And as I said, policy must be followed by action. You know, a policy demonstrates an intent. Uh, a policy also has to be backed by clear leadership commitment. It's it's important to have, you know, a CEO and her leadership speak up about their commitment to this and, and make make it a fundamental commitment through the through the company. 
I think what's more important is that then, you know, actions need to follow on this. And that action should also include transparent reporting on progress in terms of challenges as well as successes. You know, if I talk about human rights, the truth is some of the best human rights policies that we've seen within companies have been developed over time and they iterate as we go along. But I think it's important to also have senior management fully engaged, you know, involve a cross-functional team of people working to deliver on the policy and the actions uh, and make sure if you're looking at issues such as human rights, that you look at both internal issues as well as external human rights issues as you go along. You know, good policy should also be consultative and should, as I say, you know, be an iterative process, year-on-year review, course correct, and look forward to, to achieving milestones as you go along. It, it speaks to the concept of moral leadership. You know, I think the leaders can no longer lead by authority, given all of the, um, the, the, the tense yet uh, very important issues that we must address through leadership. I think leadership really needs to demonstrate vision, needs to demonstrate courage, needs to develop, demonstrate candor and transparency um, in what they do. So for me, top leadership engagement, top leadership authenticity around issues is absolutely critical um, for moving forward. And then leadership really needs to be able to engage its employees to be able to bring them along in this process. Mm-hmm. It's all about accountability. It's about measuring your action, you know, course correcting where you haven't been able to to get to. And, you know, what's often said is what you cannot measure cannot be managed. And that's why, uh, you know, consistent reporting and transparent reporting is is very critical. I think in the era of human rights, it's very important to say that human rights is a serious responsibility. It's not a nice to have. um, It's an imperative within businesses to protect, promote and respect Mm -hmm. human rights. You certainly can no longer sit in your HQ, uh, you know, uh, thinking that everything is well and not fully knowing the impact of your supply chain or what your business partners are doing. But having said that, I do recognize it is very complex. There are some large multinationals with extensive supply chains and extensive groups of business partners. But it is a critical area to to introspect and, and take a look at for sure. I think, again, if we go back to the question of policy, as I said, you know, you can have policy to deal with internal issues, but you also must have policy to deal with the external and your supply chain. And the extent to which you can get your supply chain or your business partners to be like-minded and to make the same commitments that you hold dear for yourself and in your age quarters um, will really then spread, you know, the responsible business practice, the respect and promotion of of human rights um, as we go along. We at the Global Compact have asked businesses and their supply chains to integrate our 10 principles in terms of the ways that they do business and for businesses to treat their supply chains as a a concrete extension of the way that they do business. And this really means, again, strong leadership commitment, strong alignment, strong relationships with your supply chains. They're not just a team that's out there delivering for you. They're a team that must share and apply the same value sets. I don't know about you, Joel, but I had my spine tingled by the wisdom that was shared by the two women that participated in the All We Can Save panel uh, with Catherine Wilkerson. Uh, They just had so much to share about their connection with the, the natural world. Both of them are indigenous women. And so I'm going to play, uh, we're going to play two clips from that conversation. The first is from Sherry Mitchell, and she talked about the effect of thinking about everything, including the earth, as a commodity. These are not accidental 
placements within indigenous territories. These are purposeful, you know, well-planned, systematic attacks on tribal land and water rights, attacks on tribal sovereignty because indigenous rights have been an obstacle to industry. And so these attacks uh, have, have been well strategized. They could have been placed anywhere. They're being placed in indigenous territories for the specific purpose of tearing down indigenous rights. And I think that needs to be recognized. And so when we're talking about commodification, uh, you know, one of the things that I think is most challenging for people within the mainstream society is that they've been raised to think of themselves as one of two things, a commodity or as a capitalist. Uh, and my dog has strong opinions about this, apparently. Uh, we need to do a heck of a lot more than change the ways that we create and consume. We need to actually change our relationship with consumption. We have to reevaluate our entire value structure so that consumption is not holding a primary role within the value structure that we're operating under. And so when, when your entire value system for your society is based on notions of commerce and consumption, how do you get away from that? Uh, you know, we, we commodify ourselves in, in nearly every aspect of our lives. You know, we really need to start to stop thinking about ourselves in those terms. We need to start really looking at changing the ways that we apply value. And we need to recognize that destruction of the earth has become a play, a pay to play endeavor, that there are uh, laws put in place, there are policies put in place, penalties put in place that essentially mean that anyone who has the money to violate the law uh, can go ahead and violate the law. And, um, you know, they'll just get a fine and they add that into their cost of doing business. And so until people can really change their hearts and minds, there needs to be a change in the ways that we're addressing those businesses who are violating those laws and have catastrophic costs for those who are uh, damaging Mother Earth, who are destroying people's ways of life, who are uh, purposely violating the human rights of peoples across the globe. And uh, I think that, you know, we need to look at the cost of doing business in terms of sustainability, not just bottom line. And until those things can change and we can stop looking at ourselves as either a commodity or a capitalist and can begin to look at one another as human beings uh, and, and as uh, being sacred, part of the sacred, part of what's sacred, all life being sacred, then we're going to have to be able to enact some type of measures that are going to stop the onslaught against life. And then here is Tara Huska talking about how colonization has affect our view of how we structure our society and our thought. Everything that we are taught in the, the colonial structure that we all exist within in this, in this particular society is structure. We are taught to separate ourselves. We are taught to create titles and separations and differences between ourselves, whether that's class, whether that's gender, whether that's like whatever position in life that we, we find ourselves in this society. It also means that things are based on utility, right? Like we are still living in a very utilitarian mindset all the time. And that extends to quote unquote movement in which, you know, you have situations where you're supposed to pr produce metrics of success and say, you know, things like victory over and over and over again, when that's actually really not the case most of the time. It's like the little micro um, bars that we set for ourselves. 
to me, like the, the type of victory that I've seen through living and working and building a community of resistance is creating leaders who actually hold the earth in their hearts, who understand how hard it is to actually be in relationship with nature and to do the work that it takes to live in balance. It is not easy to live in balance. It does require some discomfort. It requires sacrifice. It requires recognizing that there are parts of our lives that we need to unplug and radically reform. I mean, we're not going to solar panels and batteries and all those things still require extraction from other communities. And so you're still at some level saying your community is worth less than ours. You know, your community is, is okay. It's okay to sacrifice you in the overall, you know, shift to transition. No, we're talking about just transition. To me, there's a lot to be said about upcycling, but there's also a lot to be said, as Sherry said, about um, our consumption and what that means in terms of our, our overall um, impact. I mean, I know that I, I actually spend a lot of my time fighting fossil fuel infrastructure and fighting giant you know, corporations who are directly contributing to the overall climate crisis that we're in and the entrenched fossil fuel industry that we are in. However, I would also say that we do bear personal responsibility for ourselves and our own choices that we make in our lives. Um, there is a lot to, to be done on that front and not just to point outward instead of looking inward into our own relationships and our own connectivity. I love that session and bringing these voices to our community, to the Green Biz community is so important. And I know the community is so grateful for that because it reminds us who our stakeholders are and what we're all working for. And, uh, you know, we, we need these voices to be loud and clear. Um, all We Can Save is, uh, is a great book, by the way, with these and many other voices, uh, women from around the world talking about uh, different perspectives on climate. I really encourage you to uh, check that out. If you haven't, I'm about a third of the way into it right now. So don't tell me how it ends. Shauna Rappaport, Vice President and Executive Director of Verge with Green Biz Group. And I am so pleased to be speaking today with Danielle Boyer, an Indigenous educator, entrepreneur, inventor, author, and environmental activist who, at the age of 20, has already accomplished more than most adults to increase diversity, accessibility, and affordability in the STEAM education space. That's science, technology, education, art, and math. Danielle received the prestigious Brower Youth Award in 2020 in recognition of her outstanding work bringing environmental education and engineering resources to thousands of young people of color around the world with a particular focus on those in indigenous communities. By the time this Green Biz 350 podcast airs, Danielle will have spoken during the closing keynote of our Green Biz 21 event. Danielle, I am so excited to talk technology, innovation, and equity with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So, Danielle, talk a little bit about the organization that you founded called STEAM Connection and how initiatives like your flagship program, Every Kid Gets a Robot, are designed to fulfill your mission. 
So I founded the STEAM Connection in January of 2019, which wasn't that long ago. And our work is to bring accessible, affordable, and diverse STEAM education to children all around the world. And it has been such a really cool journey. I work with a team of all minorities and we're all students in STEAM and we work to bring things like robotics, uh, STEAM classes and more to you. And one of my favorite projects is Every Kid Gets a Robot, which is a robot that I invented that costs less than $20 and goes to kids for free. It is so, so cool. It's made with biodegradable resources, out of recycled resources. And I send it to kids for free in now 12 countries, which is insane. I'm like, the robot has been to more places than I have been, you know? And I use it to teach, (laughs) (laughs) and I've used it to teach kids skills on everything from electrical engineering to computer science to mechanical engineering. And I absolutely love the robots, but all of these initiatives matter a lot to me because I'm able to use them to supplement my different environmental classes that I teach and my other STEAM classes. And it has been so much fun because I've been able to teach tens of thousands of kids now, along with 35 youth robotics teams that I mentor. Um, One of my most recent initiatives is actually called Hands on Techie Talks, and it's a podcast that I started with my 13-year-old mentee, Vinia Gunashaker. Which is crazy. She's 13, you know, and we started a podcast for kids to bring resources um, in environmental innovation in a hands on way to kids during the pandemic. And it has been so much fun. That's amazing. I'm going to have to check out check out your podcast. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about technology and um and 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 Gen Z. I mean, you started on your path at the age of 10. And as you said, since then, you've I mean, you've either personally worked with or mentored thousands of young people. I mean, Danielle, what are your impressions of how Gen Z views the role of technology innovation, specifically in accelerating solutions to environmental problems? I think this is a really interesting question. Honestly, one I hadn't thought too much before. It's interesting because like when I was 10 years old, when I got started, I had never used a computer before. Things have just changed so, so much since I was a young kid. I think that technology now drives everything that Gen Z does, but I often think that many young kids don't necessarily see environmental activists as designers, programmers, and like scientists. I think they see activists as media figures who lead protests, and that certainly is an aspect of it, but I think that it puts them off because it may not suit their interests or they may not see role models who look like them. I think that everyone needs to play an active role in our earth. And by showing kids that you can use your skills right now can actually impact how kids see themselves and how they see their potential impact. We need people to design robots that clean up oil spills and we need people who are using their skills like right now. I believe in doing more than advocating for a solution, but also being an active part in solving one too. To me, I think that looks like education to create well-informed innovators with an emphasis on robotics, because like I encourage my students to do, I'm using my own unique skill sets and interests to do what I can to benefit our earth, and I'm close to their age too. I want to close, Danielle, with a question, um, sort of an invitation to make a call to action. You know, you're speaking to an audience mostly of business leaders. You know, what kind of support can the private sector provide to you and to Indigenous communities, either as corporate par- partners or as intergenerational allies? So I actually get asked this question a lot, and I'm always so excited to answer it because businesses hold the key to so much change. They're able to solve so many problems that we see in our communities, and they have so much impact, no matter the size of the company. And I don't think you need to necessarily have an environmental activism uh, 
program or initiative at your organization to make important change. And I think that's important to talk about. I believe that people should start with supporting young change makers that they see in their own communities. And on theme with our discussion, use your skills. Like, are you a financial advisor? Use your skills to help a young person who's trying to start their nonprofit. Are you in marketing? Help someone who is having an online platform and needs to get their platform out there. I know for me, I'm certainly really not great at social media and having these people support me, especially from different businesses, means the absolute world to what I'm doing. But to find these youth, I suggest getting involved in nonprofits that cater to students, especially in ones engaged in Indigenous uh, issues. I mean, us Indigenous peoples take care of 80% of the world's biodiversity uh, in rainforests and in community lands, we store at least 24% of above ground carbon in the world's tropical rainforest, which is insane. A lot of people don't know that. But I recommend checking out organizations like the American Indian Science and Engineering Society to see how you can get involved and be engaged as a mentor, a role model, and a leader. Danielle, I am so awe-inspired by your leadership and the and the impact that you've created already. And I am beyond excited to watch your star continue to rise. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Danielle Boyer, a recent Brower Youth Award winner, the founder of STEAM Connection. Thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you. Hi, I'm Elsa Wenzel, senior writer with GreenBiz. The well-being of people hasn't always been a top priority for the building industry, but it is a growing concern for some companies. One sign of this is the rise of a just label from the International Living Future Institute. The nutrition label for socially just and equitable organizations, as it's called, is attracting more businesses, including in architecture, design, construction, and manufacturing and gradually larger companies, including Human Scale and the architecture firm Callison RTKL. Eventually, the label could be applied beyond the building's industry. Just rates a company on a scale from 1 to 4 across 22 indicators. It exposes relative weak points alongside bragging rights for issues such as gender or ethnic diversity, equitable purchasing, and pay scale equity. The process of completing the label is not for the faint of heart. Sean Hesse, Director of Business Development at ILFI, explains how an uptick in interest is part of a growing trend in business and society. It's not enough to just put out a statement online that, you know, you support Black Lives Matter or that, you know, equity is an important value for your organization. I think we're in a new era where organizations and individuals know that, you know, it's really easy to put statements out. Um, and, and what's really important is, is actually the, the work, the actions. We can't just count on the environmental benefits of our actions to cause social co-benefits and call it a day. Um, that we actually have to focus on solving equity issues as much as we focus on solving you know, climate change. Um, that, that, that we can actually solve both of those at the same time. Rochelle Rootman is the Chief Sustainability and Quality Officer at HMTX Industries, which sells vinyl flooring in Home Depot and to institutional customers. Thanks in part to her efforts, it also became the first company to achieve the Just Label in Asia, 
for its suppliers' factories in China, and later for its U.S. operations. Just provided us with a very eloquent way, eloquent way to measure our baseline, which is you know extremely important in any transparency you know journey or effort. You kind of have to know where you where you start with. In terms of sustainability, we've covered the social as well as the environmental aspects of transparency, and we are all in. So, you know, that this has just been monumental to be able to put all the pieces together to form a complete picture for the customer. The Just label has been a milestone that Rootman hopes others will follow. One that was driven by seeing social injustice and a lack of transparency dating to years earlier in her career. After completing a geology degree, Rootman worked in compliance for the Georgia Environmental Protection Division. I visited probably hundreds of manufacturing sites all over the state, and they were always located in disadvantaged neighborhoods. And and I thought, wow, they would never have put this factory in the backyard of a country club neighborhood, you know, or something like that. And, um, you know, so I noticed that even, I mean, this is like over 30 years ago that this was going on. And many of these sites, if not all of them, were contaminated. And who knows um, what you know, what people were were drinking in their drinking water and that sort of thing, just from a, you know, human, in a human, human way, we cannot tolerate, we can no longer tolerate um, these sorts of inequities. Um, and, and then we see the impact to business and the, and the financial um, markets. And, you know, it's just really, we, we, we need, we need to go beyond this. And we need to find solutions. And we need we need very quick change. We can't keep dragging our feet and ignoring the problem. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to learn more about them. We love to hear from you. Send us your comments, questions, and tips at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.